on as we prepare our hearts to partaking in that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, what we have been through this past week. There have been joyful times, there have been difficult times, there have been heartbreaking times. But Lord, we're thankful that you have been with us through all of it, through everything in our lives. And your word gives us promise after promise after promise about who you are and how much you love us and how you will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, we thank you for the other things that are in your word too, all of these truths about who you are and how you relate to mankind and specifically how you relate to us personally. I pray that you would open our minds and open our hearts to hear what you have for us today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are multiple misconceptions in human history that have been repeated so many times, we just simply take them today as fact. Here are a few. For instance, Marie Antoinette never said the line that she is most famous for today, let them eat cake. She never said it. A, 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 a saying that was a blistering rebuttal during the French Revolution to hearing that starving mothers didn't have any bread to feed their children. But that line was originally written in 1766 by a French author, and it was incorrectly attributed to Marie Antoinette later. Why is it incorrectly attributed to her? Because Marie Antoinette was only 11 years old in 1766 and not in any sort of power. It's often been said that the genius Albert Einstein flunked out of math when he was a kid. Anybody hear that one? That one is also not true. He actually did fine in math. Where this misconception, misconception may have come from is that he flunked the entrance exam into the Zurich Polytechnic School when he was only 16 and hadn't even graduated high school yet. But the reason why he flunked out, most likely the only reason why he flunked it, is that the entire test was in French. And he was born and raised in Germany. He just didn't know the French language all that great by that point. In fact, Einstein was reading college-level physics books when he was only 11 years old. You want to know what I was doing at 11? I was too busy listening to DC Talk's Jesus Freak album, watching Full House and fighting with my brother at that point to crack open a college-level physics book. And Ben Franklin did not discover electricity, as is popularly attributed to him, nor was the kite he was flying in the lightning storm actually struck by lightning. Electricity was widely known about for a while before that event. Franklin had a theory that lightning was made up of electricity. He noticed the fibers on the string of his kite standing on edge and then felt a charge when he touched the key. If the kite he was flying had been struck by lightning, he would have been instantly killed as Professor George Wilhelm Reichmann of Russia had been only a few months later. If Franklin had been killed by getting struck by lightning, think of how much that would have impacted the American Revolution and the U.S. as it is now. These are but a few historical misconceptions. 
Today we'll be talking about Jesus shattering preconceptions about faith and how you get into heaven, which are actually really dangerous misconceptions on these matters. We'll see instead what Jesus reveals is the truth against these preconceptions and what this means for us today. We've been spending the past month and a half diving into and discussing this pivotal conversation between Jesus and this man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was and represented the height of human wisdom, religiosity, and education. And Nicodemus was and represented what humanity thought was the way to earn God's favor. For not only thousands of years before this conversation, but sadly what remains the prevailing belief today. That prevailing belief is this. Believe in God and just try to generally be a good person. That's enough. That's the prevailing belief today. That's enough to avoid punishment after death and earn paradise after death instead. Like I've mentioned several times, it's at the heart of every other religion in the world that's ever existed. When you boil them all down, that's what you get. This was the condition in the world at the time that Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus. The preconception was... Worship whatever believer you believe, worship whatever deity you believed in for the Jewish people through sacrifices and for the rest of the pagan world through sacrifices and worshiping idols. This was the way it had been for thousands of years. But revealed in John's gospel in this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus shatters this preconception. Towards both the Jewish and Gentile worlds, Jesus responds with chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus indeed references the Old Testament, the Jewish scripture, but does he reference anything having to do with an animal sacrifice? Not whatsoever. And the serpent, while worshipped as a snake idol elsewhere, especially in Egypt and Greece, did not function as an idol for deity worship, but as a symbol of personal repentance. That's the main difference here in what Jesus says. So Jesus instead revealed that what was the basis for God's favor was not just belief in him, not just worship of him through sacrifices. It's not enough to just claim belief in God. It's not enough. Like I've said a couple of times already, even Satan and every single one of his demons believe in the existence of God. So that's obviously not enough on its own to get into heaven. A belief in God must be further acted upon in repentance of sin. What this does is direct your attention to where it must always start with. An understanding that your underlying problem is your sin. And that nothing you can do can outweigh it, make up for it, or change your standing before God. All you can do is surrender yourself to seeing the gravity of it and turning away from a life directed by selfishness and sin described in one word, repentance. 
So when Jesus said that one must believe in the Son of Man, he wasn't just saying, oh, I believe in his existence. Belief in Jesus is belief in his existence and that his sinlessness meant he had to be God and looking to him meant you have to repent of your life of sin and turn towards living for him. That first preconception that belief and worship of a deity alone was enough to affect your afterlife was shattered by Jesus in this conversation. That's the first preconception that Jesus shatters here. The second preconception that everyone, Jewish or pagan, held was that if you followed the religious rules, for the most part, based on your belief in a deity, you could earn your way into a good afterlife. We obviously see this in the Jewish faith at the time of Jesus, especially in the Pharisees' legalistic way of seeing everything, but also up through today, especially with the Orthodox Jewish community. And you can also see this in every other religion, from the Greek and Roman philosophers, to the Hindu writings, to the Buddhist teachings, to the Taoist beliefs, to the Muslim laws, to the New Age belief in karma, and the universe either rewards or punishes you for what moral decisions you make. But what does Jesus say that shatters all of those preconceptions? He says in chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It does not matter how many rules you follow or don't follow. Unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus furthers this statement by saying, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And then Jesus even follows that up with, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I know we've covered all these verses before. But what does all of this mean? It means that it has nothing to do with anything having to do with you following moral or religious rules as much as you can that provides the basis for what happens to you when you die. It does not matter how many dietary rules, sacraments, times you partake in the Eucharist, if you were baptized as, as an infant, if you were confirmed in a certain church, how many times a day you pray, which direction you pray towards, or even just trying to be a good person. None of that matters. All that Jesus says here shatters all of that preconception. Jesus says the only thing that matters is what? That you are born again. Specifically, born of water and the Spirit. And that you aren't even in control of that. What? What in the world is Jesus getting at here? Being born of water, like we've talked about in the recent past, is a reference to repentance. That first part of being born again and gaining entrance into God's kingdom of heaven is surrendering who you are and everything you've been to God. The second part of being born again is, as Jesus says, being born of the Spirit. Now what does that mean? It means that since you're powerless to do anything about your sin, you need a Savior 
from that sin. For thousands of years, a deliverer had been prophesied about in the Jewish scriptures. And finally, that deliverer had arrived. That deliverer, as God, lived a sinless life to ultimately die a death as a substitute. A substitute for who? For me and for all of you and for anybody watching this online later. Since we are powerless to do anything about our standing before God, we must rely completely, completely on someone else to save us. As John 3.16 notes, which we spent our entire message on last week, the payment for sin is death. Both deaths, physical death and the second death, or eternal punishment and banishment in a place called hell. But the deliverer paid the price for both of those deaths as a substitute on our behalf. But we must accept it for ourselves Personally, each and every one of us, we must accept that we cannot earn our way into heaven. All we can do is surrender our lives in repentance for our sin and accept that Jesus died and rose again to pay for our sin. All we can do is ask God for forgiveness based solely on Jesus' death and resurrection and commit to living for him out of gratitude for him, providing a way for us to escape judgment and a way to gain entrance into heaven. See, we get two different things here. Not only do we get escape from hell, but we also gain entrance into heaven. That's it. That's what being born of the Spirit means. Here's why. When we come to a place in our lives, when we come to God in prayer, in repentance, and acceptance of God as Savior and King, all we're doing is answering the call to do so by the moving of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus says here in John 3.8, we have no control over what happens to us when we die. It is out of our hands. That's what Jesus means that just as no human can control the wind, no human can control who receives salvation and who doesn't. The Bible describes clearly, especially in Romans 9, that since we are God's creation, and it is God's plan for salvation, and it is God's standard for entrance into heaven, it's God's decision about who will come to him for salvation and who won't. It's a very hard pill to swallow, isn't it? But it's also a source of peace. Those who God leads to himself through his Holy Spirit in his timing will do so. Those God does not simply will not, and we have to trust God's eternal wisdom in that. If you have sensed the churning of the Holy Spirit within you, answer that call today. If you've never come to God in repentance, accepted Jesus as the only salvation from your sin, and made him the king over the rest of your life, do so today. Answering the Spirit's call for salvation is part of what being born of the Spirit means. The other part is that as soon as you come to God in this way, the Bible says that we are immediately indwelt by that Holy Spirit. 
He literally comes and makes a home within us and starts going to work on our lives, making us the people God wants us to be. He starts redeeming everything about who we are and what our pasts include. He starts healing marriages. He starts healing families. He starts healing relationships. He starts growing what's called the fruits of the Spirit, which include love, joy, peace, patience, and self-control within us. In short, he transforms the whole way we think about everything and the way we see the entire world. What is this? This is a gift, isn't it? It's a gift that the world simply does not have, nor ever will have on its own. You can only have this gift through Jesus. This is a gift to be freed from the world Sin and all the world's fears and darkness. Everything about our personal salvation is a gift. It's extended out to us. We just have to take it for ourselves. It has absolutely nothing to do with what we can do to earn anything. No amount of rules we can follow or even what we can control about our eternal destiny. It's a gift born out of God's eternal love. That's the second preconception that Jesus shatters. That's what leads us to the third preconception Jesus shatters, which is what our passage this morning focuses on. The third preconception flows out of the other two. The first, as a reminder, is that it's good enough to get into heaven to merely believe in and worship God. That's the first preconception that Jesus shatters. The second preconception is that you can earn your way into a good afterlife by following the moral and religious rules as best as you can and just generally trying to be a good person. That's the second preconception that Jesus shatters. The third preconception is that God's default is sending people to hell and loves to judge people for their sin. That's the third preconception that a lot of people are walking around this world believing in. So what does Jesus say to shatter this third preconception? If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be in two verses today, verses 17 through 18. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you or look this up on your favorite uh, smartphone Bible app. John chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, we read, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. A lot of people are walking around this world thinking, oh, well, I'll just come up with a good enough excuse when I'm standing before God at the end of all things. What this says right here is that you're judged already. You don't have a good thing in the world to say for yourself. You've already been judged. The preconception... Well, let's dig into this a little bit here. The preconception for Greek and Roman beliefs was that there was an underworld where everyone went. It didn't matter who you were or what you did. You all went to the, an underworld either called Hades or Pluto. Makes the cartoon character name a little creepier sounding now. 
And Hades, or Pluto, souls just kind of existed in a meaningless state with nothing to do to pass eternal time. It was the epitome of boredom. Surviving relatives had to perform some kind of burial rite for the deceased in order to save you to go to Hades or Pluto or your soul was forced to wander in between worlds as a ghost. The preconception for Judaism at the time of Jesus was that, again, your entire fate was based on how well you followed the Jewish law. If you followed the law well, you earned paradise. If you didn't, you were considered a sinner. And where did sinners automatically go? Hell. That's why Jesus was so radical in the Pharisees' minds. Because to the Pharisees, sinners were already lost. Causes. But to Jesus, there was always hope that they would repent and turn to God. If you were a sinner, that is, you lived life in opposition to the moral rules of the Jewish law, you would be judged by God for that life and be punished for it. A very similar belief pervades today, that if you're a bad person, God automatically sends you to hell. And to people who are angry at God for things that have happened in their lives, they firmly believe that God is set against them. But verses 17 through 18 shatters all of those preconceptions. Firstly, to address the pagan Greek and Roman beliefs, that is an incredibly pointless and meaningless afterlife, isn't it? There may not be much to be saved from, but Jesus reveals what God wants to save people to. Instead of defaulting to, you get what you deserve, God actively wants to save people to eternal joy and meaning. God is not apathetic. God wants to save people. That's what pleases God. It doesn't please God to judge people. It pleases Him to save them. And one more thing. Whereas you were reliant upon other humans in that belief system to, you hope, perform the necessary burial rites, or you were just hopelessly doomed to wander as a ghost, God, the one who is actually in charge of everything, is the one saving you to eternal joy. You don't need to leave that to finite human beings that you hope are going to take care of it for you. You can leave it all in God's hands. He's the one who's saving you. He's the one who will enter you into eternal joy. Since he never breaks his promises, you know that when scripture says that immediately upon a believer's death, his or her soul goes to be in Jesus's presence in heaven, that's what's going to happen. Now to address the prevailing Jewish belief at the time of Jesus that also continues through today in many varying ways. That God is a deity you must earn the favor of by trying to follow all of his rules or you're just defaulted to be doomed to hell. Here in verses 17 through 18, Jesus reveals what's really at the center of God's heart. God does not want people to get what they deserve. That is a huge statement to make, isn't it? God does not want people to get what they deserve. How's that? Because God did not send Jesus into the world to judge it. If God 
wanted people to get what they deserved, he would have sent his son into the world to judge the world. But he didn't send his, world, his son into the world to judge it, but to what? Save it. As humans, we're so focused on people getting what they deserve for their bad and sinful actions. If that was the case with God, then he would have sent God the Son into the world the first time in order to judge the world. But God's love is so overwhelmingly great that he sent God the Son into the world in order to save humanity. That goes against everything the pharisaical Jewish belief at the time of Jesus, and that goes against everything of most of what the average person today thinks. That God exists to judge, to judge you for what you're doing now, to judge you for what you've done in the past, and he's just waiting for you to mess up just so he can smite you with something. That is simply not true. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Why? Because if Satan can convince you that God is out to get you and is just waiting to judge you, then what are you not thinking about? You're not thinking about his love. That is the thing that's farthest from your mind. And God's love is the very basis for his, for his salvation. And God's love is why he sent God the Son to save people from every background, race, ethnicity, language, past, political leaning, perceived identity, past trauma, addictions, or greatest struggles with sin. Jesus next shatters the preconception of established expectation of what you get for what you do. This is the prevailing belief even today. You get what you deserve. You make your bed, and then you have to sleep in it. Cultural karma thinking says that the universe rewards you for good and the universe punishes you for the bad things you do. But Jesus completely shatters all of this preconception. Just like your entrance into heaven has absolutely nothing to do with how good you are, God's judgment has absolutely nothing to do with how bad you've been. Both are equally true. It is only based on one thing, as Jesus is very clear about in verse 18. If you believe in Jesus as God and as the only hope for your salvation, you will never be condemned. Never. If you don't, you already are condemned and will simply continue in that state of condemnation and there's nothing you can do about it. We do get what we deserve. Hell, but not based on what we did with our lives. It's only based on if we never answered the Holy Spirit's call to us to surrender our lives to God in repentance and to take Jesus as our personal Savior and King. There's only one basis, both for condemnation and for salvation. There's only one basis, and that's this. Did we accept or reject Jesus as our only salvation? 
That's it. It has nothing to do with how you lived your life. Did we accept or reject Jesus as our only salvation? What we don't deserve is salvation from God's condemnation. That's what we don't deserve. But that's the gift that God extends out to each and every one of us. What we get when we surrender to, God's, to God in repentance and accept Jesus' death and resurrection as having paid the penalty for our sin that we had no hope of paying ourselves is life saved from God's condemnation. That includes both the rest of these earthly lives and the whole other next one. To be freed from God's judgment, God's condemnation, and God's wrath. See, here's the thing. Like we talked about last week, God is both perfectly just and perfectly loving. His justice demands that we will be under his judgment for our sin. See, we can't have one without the other, no matter how much we want it. Our, his, his justice demands that we will be under his judgment for our sin. That judgment is death and condemnation to hell. But God's love drives him to provide a way to be saved from that and a desire that people answer that call. You have to have both God's justice and God's love, or what do you actually not want? You actually don't want God. You either want God for all of who he is, or you actually don't want God. You can't just want God's love without God's judgment. It doesn't work like that. There must be one standard for justice that covers everyone, regardless of how they view themselves. If there wasn't, then like I mentioned last week, even people like Hitler, ISIS, and serial killers could justify that they're still good enough to get into heaven. You see that? There can't be a double standard. And if we were really honest with ourselves, we can see that. The one and only hope is that there is salvation from that condemnation which God desires people to accept for themselves. The Apostle Peter puts it this way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God sends people to hell because it's just and because it's justly necessary, no matter how hard of a pill it is for us to swallow. But that does not mean that he likes it. God has his own reasons, and those reasons are perfect. God saves people to join with him for eternity out of his love and all of heaven erupts in a gigantic party when each person accepts this gift of salvation found in Jesus for him or herself. The Apostle Paul spends an entire chapter in Romans chapter 8 describing all of the blessings of being saved from God's judgment. He starts out that chapter with, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what he starts out that entire chapter with. And then he goes on to list 
All of these blessings that go along with that. These include being empowered to overcome sin and addiction. The promise that we will be raised again from the dead and given glorified bodies when Jesus comes back. That we have become true children of God and can come to him in prayer as our heavenly dad whenever we want. Expressing our pain, confusion, depression, fear, powerlessness, needs, and weaknesses that we have been given an eternal inheritance that will never decay or disappear. That all the suffering we go through in this life does not compare to all the joy and glory we will experience in the next. That the Holy Spirit intercedes for us to God the Father, especially when we don't know how to pray about something. That God works everything out for good for us, even if we don't see it until we go to be with him. That those God has chosen to be his children, he will glorify someday. That if God is for us, truly, no one can be against us. That Jesus defends us against the accusations of Satan leveled at us. That nothing will separate us from God's love, not even death or the entirety of the kingdom of darkness, and that through Jesus, we are more than conquerors and have the victory over every kind of sin, fear, depression, lack, or attack by the one who wages war against our very souls. Because we are no longer under God's condemnation, only through a personal repentance, acceptance, and commitment to Jesus, we have all of God and all of heaven opened up for us. That's what we were made for. And that's what we will receive. But you don't just automatically get it. And you can't earn it. All you can do is surrender. All you can do is come to God in prayer. Admit that your sin separates you from him. And there's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is accept that Jesus paid the death penalty for you on your behalf. And ask God for forgiveness based solely on Jesus taking your place. And all you can do is commit to follow him the rest of your life led by his Holy Spirit. There is so much at stake. There is so much to be lost. And there is so much to be gained. The only factor of difference in all of this is Jesus. What will you do with him? Reject him? And simply continue down the road of God's just condemnation? Or accept him, be saved from that condemnation, and be given all of God and all that he has to offer as one of his children? What are you going to do with this now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two verses. And there is so much wrapped up in these two verses and within the context of the rest of the chapter. Lord God, we thank you for what it opens up for us. It opens up for us what we deserve in your perfect justice, but it also opens up what we get as a gift when we accept you. We get all of who you are and all that you have to offer to us. 
So Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here or watching online that has never come to you, has never accepted that their sin separates them from you, has never accepted Jesus as the Savior from their sin and made, them the king, made you the king over their lives, I pray that they would do so right now. They have no clue what's going to happen as soon as they set foot out of this church or, or they turn off this message. No clue. We know you do. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who has made this commitment, who has accepted this gift for themselves, I pray that we will revel in all of what it is. Explore what this gift is like. Because all that we're going to find at the end of that road is more and more of you. We thank you that you are the gift that you extend out to us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.